scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, which is an expounded version of our text this morning, which is actually Matthew 5. It was said also, whoever divorces his wife, let her give, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any case? And he answered, and this text here is actually Matthew 19, before it was Matthew 5. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we are up against another difficult text for our culture, but we know it's not difficult through the power of your spirit. So we ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that we would humble ourselves to your word and your truth, and not what we think, but what you think, for that is all that matters, for you are king alone, not us. And so, Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts. Lord, I just pray that everyone here would be encouraged by this text. And, Father, I just pray for the marriages in our church. Help them to be strong. Help them to picture the love of Christ for his bride, which is us, the church. A love that never fades, that never ends, that doesn't have conditions attached. And so we praise you for that. Help me now to speak your truth, not mine. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. He loathed it. It repulsed him, actually. He hated it. In fact, this repulsion had haunted him for many years. This wasn't the first time that David had tried to amputate his own leg. When he was just out of college, he tried to remove it himself by fashioning a tight tourniquet out of an old sock and bailing wire. He locked himself in his bedroom at his parents' house, propped his bound leg up against the wall in order to try and prevent blood flow into it. But then after two hours, when the pain and fear had become unbearable, he finally gave up. Thankfully, the blood flow returned which isn't always the case since undoing a tourniquet is actually a very dangerous endeavor because when you undo it, the blood flows downstream with full of toxins and all sorts of issues it can cause, including kidney failure. 
Still, failure did not lessen his resolve to get rid of the leg, and he became consumed with his desire to get this thing removed. He spent every waking moment trying to avoid putting weight on the bad leg because he loathed it. He imagined and dreamed what it would be like to finally be free of this no-good leg. At home, he'd hop around on one foot, and when sitting in his chair watching TV, he would angrily push his leg off to the side and pretend it wasn't there. David even began to blame his leg for his singleness, which, as you are probably aware of by now, had nothing to do with it. It had to do with his mentally disturbed nature. But then, after years of loneliness, being afraid to socialize and form relationships, David had had enough. He was tired of this leg constantly dragging him down. And so again, he tried to amputate his leg, but he failed. And so this time, he came up with a better idea. Online, he found through underground channels somebody else who had the same condition he had. And that person now made it their mission to help people like David find doctors, to find surgeons who would remove limbs for them, as they had had done for themselves. And so, getting connected with a surgeon who was willing to do the surgery because he was sympathetic to David's situation, he diagnosed David with a condition called body dysmorphic disorder. However, the surgeon still wasn't able to do surgery under that pretense. And so he had David admitted to the hospital for a completely different reason entirely, for vascular surgery. And then, under the false pretense of vascular surgery, the surgeon and his team, when they got in there, suddenly discovered that it was much too damaged, and so they had to amputate David's leg. After the surgery, David said he was finally happy, and that he had no regrets at all whatsoever. And ironically, for the first time in his life, he felt free. He felt whole again, even though, as we can see, he was anything but whole. Though David's condition of body dysmorphic disorder is certainly a bizarre and rare condition, you realize, church, our culture suffers from the same exact condition, but in a completely different way. Did you know that roughly one out of every two marriages in our culture ends in divorce, which has grown drastically since the 1920s? Back then, you know what it was? It was only one out of seven marriages ended in divorce. Which is crazy because research has proven that, you know, the people who are most happy in life are those who are married. In fact, just being married for your whole life makes you live longer. There's something to that, men. So if you want to live longer, stay married. All right? But the point is, those who are married show much higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or merely living with their partner. Research also shows that most people are, generally speaking, happy with their marriages. In fact, two-thirds of those who are unhappy in their marriages will become happy if they fight it out and duke it out for the next five years. They will be in a state of happy marriage. They just got to tough it out. And yet, nearly half do not tough it out and instead choose to go the route of radical amputation. Now, why am I calling it radical amputation? Well, because that's what divorce is. Biblically speaking, it's radical amputation. It's not like simply just ripping up a contract and saying, okay, where's that divorce certificate? We're done. Move on. No, it's much more than that. It's more like severing a major body part. Which is why in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says this. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, what? One flesh. One flesh. That's what happens. This is a profound mystery. And so just as the removal of a limb is a radical endeavor, so too is the separation that occurs when the one fleshness of marriage is suddenly severed and ripped apart. It's an amputation. It's a very painful and dramatic ordeal, which is why the Bible says in Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. It's also why Jesus warns against divorce, as we read from our passages this morning in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. Now, let's pause for a moment. If you're new around here, maybe you're wondering why we are preaching on divorce today. Maybe you're thinking, oh, this is one of those churches that just likes to blast the hot topic issues. Maybe they just are going after the issues that make them the most grumpiest. Well, I can assure you that's absolutely not it, because if it was up to me, we absolutely would have picked a different passage today. Because as you, I don't know if you know this, but how did John the Baptist die? He got his head cut off. And why? Because he was putting the king's marriage and his divorce on blast. All right, so I don't want to get my head removed today, but we need to deal with this text because, as you know, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the next text in our passage. And so all of God's word is profitable for reproof, correction, doctrine, and instruction so that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. All right, First Timothy tells us that. And so we're not going to shy away from this text this morning. We're going to jump right into it. All right, with that said... When we get to Matthew 19, 1 through 12, down the road as well, since we are lumping these together, you can't accuse me of skipping that text, because we are combining them this morning. This, as we said before, this text here is a small condensed version of what we find in Matthew 19. All right, so let's jump in here. And well, the reason, let me say this, the reason I, I, did, I didn't move this to Matthew 19 was because actually the placement here in Matthew chapter 5 fits really well with what we looked at last week. And so if you miss that sermon, you're really going to miss out here because it really is a part one of today's part two. All right, now let's jump in. In our passage this morning, we will see that marriage cannot easily be dissolved for three reasons, and here they are, note takers. And that's four reasons. Four reasons. The, the source of marriage, the essence of marriage, the power of marriage, and the fuel of marriage. Sometimes when you're writing your sermon, you think you have three points and you're done and you have four and you forget to go back and update the fact that you have four instead of three. But we have four this morning. So the question I want to ask you as we begin is this, where does marriage come from? Is it a human invention, sort of like schools, hospitals, or libraries? Something we came up with? No, it's not. Marriage is not a human invention. Because think about it. If it was, you know what that means we could do? We could meddle with it. We could change it around into what suited our needs and what we thought was best. But it's not. Marriage is a divine institution that's created by God, which means we can't touch it. We got to leave it alone and go with what he made it to be. And if we mess around with it, we're going to cause major, major harm. There's an illustration I like of this. If you try to take a gun, right, that's designed with a purpose, and, you know, the manufacturers put that purpose into the design, and you try to use it your own way, not how they instruct, and shoot, pull the trigger, what are you going to do? Kill yourself. 
right? You have to use the gun how it's designed to be used. And so too with marriage, God made it a certain way and it functions only in that way. Which means it would be incredibly stupid to ignore what God has told us about how marriage is meant to function. In Genesis chapter 2, we read of God's creation of the world. And after every creating act, what does he say about it? Behold, it was very good, right? It was good. But then we get to Adam and God says, oh, no, 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 no. It's not good. Not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? He creates for Adam a wife named Eve. And then it's very good. God designed marriage to function between one man and one woman, and that marriage covenant was originally meant to last forever. It's a long time. That's what it was meant to last for. It was truly a beautiful thing. And as we discussed last week, this covenant of marriage was created for the husband and wife to share full intimacy together. And that goes well beyond the physical into the intellectual and to the emotional. Do you realize that there has never been a society or culture that didn't have marriage? They all have them. Now, why is that? It's because marriage comes from God. We didn't make it up. He invented it when he invented us on the day that he made us, which means that the roots of marriage lie deep. And so this means also that our culture can chant love is love all day long. We can legalize marriage between two people of the same sex or even multiple peoples as it appears to be heading towards. But it's not going to change the reality of what marriage actually is, will it? Why is that? Because we can't tinker with it. We can't make it something it's not. God made marriage, and he made it a certain way, which is one man and one woman forever, for all of life. This also means that you can't run your marriage how you see fit, right? It means that it's meant to operate a certain way, and if we refuse to follow the instructions, it's going to harm us. And so if you want a good marriage, you've got to do it God's way, not your way. And sadly, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had taught people to do marriage their way, not God's way. And so it had gotten into a huge mess. So what did they teach? They taught this. They taught that the law of Moses commanded or even urged a man to divorce his wife for any old reason. Any problems at all? Divorce her. Move on. But the truth was, as Jesus points out, it never said anything like that whatsoever. Instead, it instructed that if divorce happens... It has to be done under these certain conditions. It was putting guidelines on them. And the religious leaders' conditions, though, were not the conditions that the law of Moses laid down. In fact, they allowed divorce for nearly anything. Did your wife burn your food? Divorce her. I'm not kidding. That was a real one. Issue her a certificate of divorce and move on. Do you find the neighbor girl more attractive as your wife has aged? Divorce her. Give her a certificate of divorce and move on. Sounds awfully similar to our lust-driven culture today, though, now, doesn't it? See, the way they saw it was that the issue of importance wasn't so much divorce. It was you had to issue the letter for divorce, right? It was all about that. It was all about the letter of the law. And so long as you issued that letter, you were golden in God's eyes. But as Jesus rightly points out, if you divorce someone for a reason other than adultery, you were not, in fact, golden in God's eyes. What were you in God's eyes, does Jesus say? An adulterer, which is a heavy thing. And this would have been shocking for these religious leaders because what was the Old Testament penalty for adultery? The death penalty. Capital punishment by stoning is a very serious matter, which tells us just how much 
Malachi is correct when it says that God hates divorce. So the text in question here that the religious leaders were pointing Jesus to is Deuteronomy 24.14. We're not going to read all of it or read it this morning, but in that passage, it doesn't even mention adultery, right? Because as we just said, there was no need to mention adultery as a valid reason to divorce. Why? Because your spouse, husband or wife, whoever committed adultery, they, they're going to be dead pretty soon because they're going to be executed by stoning. So it was pointless to say, oh, divorce your spouse right before we execute them. No, death severed the relationship, and so they didn't need to back in Moses' day. It would be completely pointless to mention it then. And so, though God created marriage, he allowed divorce back then. Why does Jesus say? Look at verse 8. Because of the hardness of their hearts. And so similar to slavery in the Bible, God graciously puts restraints upon these heart-hardened acts. See, remember in those days, it wasn't like today. When you got a divorce, the woman didn't get half the stuff. The guy didn't get half the stuff. It was, no, the guy got everything, all right? The woman was in big trouble. Her livelihood was in jeopardy. And so Moses looked and saw this thing with divorce going on rampantly, and he's like, this is a mess. We got to clean this chaos up. And so he put restraints upon it. He didn't sever divorce as an option because of the hardness of their hearts, but he puts restraints upon it because he wanted to control the chaos. And so the Pharisees saw this law as opposite of what it was actually intended to do. It was intended to control the chaos, not add to the chaos, with simply having a certificate of paper that was the initiator of said chaos. It wasn't meant to empower divorce, but to limit its destructiveness, which is why the man had to issue the bill of divorcement on the grounds of uncleanliness, which you don't have time to go into this morning. And he had to do so in the presence of two witnesses. And this offered the woman great, great protection. How? Because she couldn't be accused of adultery then and then be stoned to death when she went out and remarried. Now, there's a lot more we can say here, but for now, this will have to do. But the thing is, and this is important, Jesus wasn't correcting or undoing the law of Moses. He was what? He was fulfilling it. He was filling it up filling it full. He was correcting not the law of Moses, but the religious leaders who had a very wrong interpretation. And so he was correcting it, not replacing it. He was also, what Jesus was trying to do was get at the meaning of marriage, which as we discussed, comes from God, not from us, which means its meaning and its purpose isn't up to us, which leads us to our second point. The marriage Marriage cannot be easily dissolved because, one, the source of marriage, but secondly, the essence of marriage. Let me ask you another question. What is the purpose of marriage? A lot of answers out there about this one. What is the purpose of marriage? Now, this is where if you missed last week, you're really going to miss out here because we only have a moment to cover this. But the purpose of marriage isn't affection. It's not fulfilling your feelings of love and emotional satisfaction. There's lots of relationships that can give you that. The essence of marriage is not that. The essence of marriage is oneness, one flesh. It's oneness. That's what it's about. It's the union of two people becoming one flesh. And as we discussed last week, this union is protected by a covenant, not a contract. That's a massively important difference. Our culture has messed this one up Badly, just about as badly as the culture of Jesus' day. So let's ask, what is a covenant? 
Look at verse 5 with me. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This cleaving is the union or the covenant of marriage. And when we are making our covenantal vows, do you notice what's actually being said? Pay attention this next time you're at a wedding. What is actually being said? What isn't being said is this. I promise and swear to love you as long as I feel love. We don't say that. No, we are covenanting together and saying, I promise to love you even when I don't feel love, even when you let me down. What it is, it's not a promise of current love. It's a promise of future love. To love in the future, down the road, even though I don't know what life may bring. Everybody has present love when they get married. And that's the easy part, since it's largely driven by instincts at this point. And the problem occurs when our instincts, our other instincts, the sinful instincts, take over of selfishness after marriage, which leads to us no longer feeling the love like we quite did when we were dating. And so covenantal marriage is the vow to love one another until when? Until death do us part. Not until unhappiness do us part, which is what it was in Jesus' day, like in our culture today. And so Jesus was correcting this. A wedding has nothing to do with pledging your current love. That's pretty much worthless. A wedding is about pledging your future love that will go on even when the feelings of love may not. And so what a wedding is, is you stand there before God, friends, and family, and you vow to God to continue giving love, faithfulness, and affection regardless of those future conditions. It's a vow of future love. And do you realize, church, that this is the only possible way to have the oneness of marriage that God intended? It's the only way. See, if when you marry somebody, it's contractual or conditional love, then you never have the cleaving that's talked about here in Genesis chapter 2. It doesn't happen. Not really, since, you've, since you are always having to keep your makeup on, never let your guard down, never let them see who you truly are, because if they do, they might tear that contract up. You are constantly aware of your deficiencies, but you have no one to share that with. No one to help you who is one and the same as you, who cares about you just as much as they do themselves. But when marriage is based upon covenant, you are no longer alone in your deficiencies. You've got a partner in crime. You've got a helpmeet who's there, who says, that's a lot of problems. I've got some too. Let's work on this together. That's what a covenant marriage looks like. You finally have somebody you can share the depths of your soul with. Because you know because of that covenant that they are one and the same as you. You are one flesh. Which is why Adam poetically said, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam is saying, You are me. I am you. We are one. And that is only possible when the essence of marriage is oneness. In covenantal marriage, we put our, what is called our flawmatics away, right? We got, all got flawmatic detectors that we are constantly scanning everybody with. We put that away, right? Because in covenant marriage, we are no longer controlled by that because we understand that marriage is two flawed people coming together in a broken and flawed world. See, in our culture, we are obsessed with finding Mr. Right. The truth is, you don't exist. She don't exist. 
right? There is no Mr. Right. Yes, it's true that some people are really, really the wrong person to marry, but the truth is everybody is, in fact, because of sin, deeply incompatible. And so on one hand, we don't expect perfection in covenantal marriage, but on the other, we don't expect the other person to be thrilled about our flaws that we are unwilling to work on since their flaws affect me. We're one flesh. We are in this together. Instead, we see our spouse as our other half, and we work on those problems. We don't hide them. We expose them in order to go after them as partners, as a team. But if you don't have this approach to marriage, you know what you're going to do? You're going to hide. You're going to cower. You're going to try to cover up intellectually, emotionally, which often leads to physically covering from your spouse, which completely destroys the oneness of marriage. And so we must expose ourselves under the safe umbrella of covenantal marriage if we are ever to experience this cleaving, this oneness that is talking talking about in Genesis chapter 2. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, and here's what he said. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy is damnation. Lewis is right. Some people think the Bible now is rigid and harsh when it commands Christians to not marry unbelievers. It's a clear command. The Bible tells us to not be unequally yoked. Don't marry a non-believer. But now do you see why this isn't actually rigid and harsh? It's not at all. Think about it. As a Christian, what is the core of your being centered on? Christ, right? And if marriage is about oneness and you are going to share the core of your being with a spouse who laughs at Christ, who scoffs at Christ, you know how painful that is? It's incredibly painful. We can't have that full oneness as God intended when we are married to an unbeliever. And so when it comes to choosing a spouse, I'll talk to the teens for a minute. Don't date Johnny because he's so sweet or Sally because she's so cute and nice. No, marry them because of their love for Jesus and their commitment to following Christ. That's who you should be looking after. All right? And our culture doesn't do it this way. We look at somebody's height, we look at their looks, we look at their weight, and we write them off. Boom, done. And the reality is, you're narrowing down the pool of potential marriage prospects right off the bat there because you're looking for the wrong criteria as priority number one. Do you realize that any two strong Christians who grasp the truth of what marriage, the essence and the truth of what marriage actually is can have a good marriage? Absolutely true. For the essence of marriage is oneness, not attractiveness. You realize that? That's a remarkable thing for us. Like we don't, this is like, wait, what? How does this work? No, it is oneness, not attractiveness. And when you recognize this, it leads to your marriage becoming a powerful force for good in not only your life, but the life of others. Marriage cannot easily be dissolved because of the source of marriage, the essence of marriage, but third, the power of marriage. Marriage is quite the remarkable thing. It's powerful. 
And here's why it's powerful. See, if everybody here looks at me and they're like, man, that's one ugly dude, all right? But my wife, she thinks I'm not an ugly dude. She thinks I'm Prince Charming. Do you know who votes when, whose vote wins out? Hers does. I couldn't care less what you all think, all right? Her vote wins out. But flip that around. If she thinks I'm Quasimodo, right, and everyone here thinks I'm not, right, I'm crushed. It ruins me. And I walk away thinking that I'm actually the hunchback of Notre Dame. That's how this works. All right? So marriage is incredibly powerful. Outside of our relationship with Christ, our marriage is, in fact, the most powerful relationship in our lives. It's incredibly important. And if this marriage, which is so powerfully important, is powered by covenantal love, it has the power to bring the absolute best out of you. And if it's not, we know this, it can bring the worst out of you too. It absolutely can. But here lies the problem. Marriage can be both a power for good and for destruction in our lives. And so you know what that means when it comes to the importance of marriage? It means the kids are way below it. It means the job is way below it. It means it is priority number one. It has so much power in your life, and if you don't give it priority one, what's going to happen? It's going to be a power for destruction, not for good. Do you realize, church, that this is why the Bible takes divorce so seriously? It is utterly and devastatingly destructive. Divorce is a destructive tsunami upon our lives. It wreaks havoc long, long after the settlement is finalized. It leaves scars and wounds from the amputation that never actually heal. In fact, the death of a spouse is easier than the divorce of a spouse. It surely is. Divorce rips families apart. It leaves a sense of failure and guilt, nights without sleep that are full of tears and sadness. It affects our jobs as our mind wanders and our work performance is hindered. And if this wasn't bad enough, it leaves parents with the agonizing pain over their children, wondering if their divorce scars will bleed over into the future marriages of them. There are custody battles, financial battles, visitation rights that must be worked out, and holidays that always seem to give the painful reminder of the amputation that has occurred. And yet, our culture, like the cultures of Jesus, amputated over every possible reason. I like how one pastor put it. He said, divorce in our culture is often like amputating your leg over a splinter. Good illustration. And you know what? Don't you think it might be a whole lot less painful on you and everybody else to pull that splinter out? Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a whole lot less than chopping the entire leg off. This is why, church, the Bible restricts divorce as Jesus does here. For divorce, for any other reason than adultery, Jesus says, is like amputating your leg for a splinter. And, you know, think about it. If David's parents knew that he was going to go amputate his leg like that, do you think they would have tried to stop him? Would you try to stop your kid if they wanted to amputate their leg because they just thought it was ick? They didn't like it? Of course you would. It's a loving thing to do. And so do you see now why, as a church, we take the practice of church discipline so very seriously? And it's not because we're bigoted and judgmental. It's because we don't want to see people amputating their leg over a splinter. 
We want to see them avoid such drastically painful life-altering measures. Now still, sometimes limbs have to be amputated and divorce is inevitable, as Jesus points out. The word Jesus uses for this covenantal destruction is pornea, which we translate as adultery. And it actually goes, has a wide range there. But it is not lawful, Jesus is telling us, to divorce because your spouse has a bad temperament. It is not lawful to divorce them because they have a drug addiction. Or even for a spouse who is an unbeliever. And how do we know that? And as we just said a minute ago before I answer that, that's really essential for deep oneness, right? But even that, Paul says, don't divorce your spouse for that. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us not to do that. He says, stay with the spouse if they are willing to stay with you. Nothing is a cause for divorce except for pornea, Christ says. And so it doesn't matter how difficult the marriage may be. It doesn't matter how much stress it adds to your life or how unhappy it makes you feel. Jesus says divorce is simply not an option for those reasons for a believer. And those who do so anyway, what does Jesus say? You are an adulterer who makes your second spouse an adulterer. And so the loving thing to do as a church in these kinds of situations is to practice Matthew 18 and try to, with all the love that we can, Plead with them to not amputate over a splinter. Now, if you don't like this, I want to give you a reminder here. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. And it's my job to share them with you this morning. So if you don't like them, you'll have to take it up with the living Son of God, which I would not advise you to do. Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said here, but we'll have to save that part of the deeper conversation here for our fellowship and focus time. But lastly, let me turn our attention to the fuel for marriage that every single one of us needs. Marriage cannot be easily dissolved because the source of marriage, the essence of marriage, the power of marriage, and finally, the fuel of marriage. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Oh, this preacher is really bold and shaking things up this morning. He's got four points instead of three. Well, let's chalk that up to a difficult passage, or maybe we can scratch that. We have two difficult passages combined together, which maybe means we actually need six points this morning, but I only have four, so we'll have to make do. When Jesus finishes his teaching on marriage and divorce being only permissible in cases of adultery, do you see what the disciples says? The disciples say to Jesus in verse 10, Jesus, if this is true, then what kind of an idiot would get married? That's my translation. That's basically what they're saying. They're like, what in the world? If this is how serious marriage is, like, I know I got lots of friends who they got married and they married somebody. You know, like, you're saying they got, they're stuck? This is like, that's, that's their question. Look what Jesus says to them. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. What is it that they are given? The gospel of grace. Whether you are single, married, or divorced, the fuel that you must run on must be the gospel of grace which is received. Whether you are a eunuch not by your choice, a eunuch by your choice, which we could equate to the modern-day gift of singleness, or married, you can only function rightly in these situations or righteously with the gospel of grace. You can only surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees by the gospel, which as the disciples rightly recognize is impossible without, which means, as Jesus points out, you must be given it. It is a gift. 
It is not something you manufacture. You don't have it within you. You simply don't. And so I ask you, are you able to receive this? Are you able to receive this teaching that Jesus is commanding? For until you see the covenantal love of Christ for us, you will never be able to receive the hard teachings of Jesus in this passage. You won't be able to do it. You'll roll your eyes at it. Say, that's, that's a pipe dream. That's unrealistic. That's not here in the real world, like the disciples responded. But as Jesus says, no, you're right. It's not of the real world, but it comes out of this world into our world, making it a part of this real world. What am I talking about here with the covenantal love of Christ? I'm talking about this. I'm talking about how God himself loves us so much that he set aside his glory by being born as a little helpless baby in order to redeem sinners. I'm talking about how Christ, the perfect husband, who loves his imperfect church, who as the Bible calls is his bride, and he loves his bride in spite of all of her spots and blemishes and wrinkles, and he's infinitely patient with her as we sin against him daily, horribly sometimes. I'm talking about Christ's love for us, which saw our adultery against him. And instead of handing us over to the death penalty and the onslaught of God's wrath being hurled down upon us, instead he forgave us, and instead he took the stoning that you and I deserve upon the cross. And because Christ did so, it doesn't matter, church, if you're on your second or your fifth marriage. You can be, praise God, completely forgiven and spared from the stoning of God's wrath. And might I say, just because Jesus gives a concession for divorce in the case of adultery, does he require it? No, he does not. And isn't the grace of God a wonderful reason to work and do everything that we possibly can on our side of things to try to restore that, just as Christ does for us, who is his church? For marriage is a picture. That's what it's about. It's a picture of the love of Christ for his church. And what a horrible bride we've been to him. And yet, praise God, he never divorces us, though he has every right to. Praise God. Praise God indeed. Another thing, church, I need to say this because there's a lot of people out there preaching otherwise, sadly. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Even a marriage that began adulterously or sinfully that violated the teachings of Jesus here, can become, by God's grace, a wonderful picture of Christ's love for his church. It can become a marriage that those of us who are on our first marriage can look at and say, praise God for what he has done in their lives, and the picture of the love of Christ for the, ch- for the church that we see in it. How do I know this? Several reasons, but I'll give you one. I remind you of King David and Bathsheba. How do they begin their marriage? Not so well. Adultery. Murder in order to try to hide the adultery. Very serious thing. You want to talk about an unbiblical marriage, this is it. This is the prime example right here. Yet in spite of its sinful beginning, what did God do through this marriage? He cleansed it. And through this marriage, he brought the Messiah himself, who would be the Savior of all the world. And so even if you are an adulterer who has divorced wrongly in the past because of the gospel of grace, adulterers, murderers, fornicators, liars, every single one of us can boldly sing as the old hymn goes, 
Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore his praises bring. Maybe you are here and you've been the victim of a divorce that was not your desire. Perhaps your spouse was unfaithful to you, even though you remained faithful to them. Then take hope in the fact that we serve a God who completely understands your pain and sorrow. Why? Because he's gone through a painful divorce himself. In Ezekiel 16.8, it reads, And when I passed by again, this is talking about God's marriage to Israel, it says, And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you and covered your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. But then, as verse 15 says, it tells us of how Israel played the harlot and committed adultery against God. Consequently, then, God issues her a certificate of divorce in Jeremiah 3.8, which reads, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. And yet I saw that her unfaithful sister, Judah, had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. You see what God is saying, church? God is calling himself a divorced person. This is remarkable. And so even if you have been the victim of an adulterous spouse, take hope in knowing God has too. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. As Ezekiel 16 goes on to say, he will then also one day make it right. Today is Palm Sunday. And as we know, it celebrates the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem when the people shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And yet, what did those same adulterous lips chant only days later? Crucify him. Crucify him. They denounced their king. They wanted him dead. The truth is, church, every one of us, is an adulterer at heart, as we talked about last week. For in our hearts, every single one of us has at one point cried, crucify him, crucify him. And yet the remarkable thing is that through the gospel of grace, by faith in Christ, we are completely, full stop, completely forgiven for our unfaithfulness through the faithfulness of Christ our Savior. And it is only because of his faithfulness that we can avoid being stoned by the wrath of God and cosmically amputated away from him on the day of judgment. And so, church, what a powerful reason we have to avoid amputating our marriages and treating them in the same way that Christ does with his own, which is the church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this text. We thank you for easy texts, and we thank you for rough texts, for we need them all. And so, Father, I just pray that this wouldn't be a text that beats up your church, but a text that encourages them, that makes them walk away and say, praise God for the gospel of grace who saves adulterers even like I.
for we are all adulterers before you. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that our marriages would be strong, that we would have the strength and the boldness and the conviction to stand up and say, no, this is not what God says. That we would care enough about the marriages in our church when we see them struggling, when we maybe see them looking to consider radical amputation, that we would say, no, this is not the way. There's a better way. Let us help you and fix the problem. So, Father, I pray for those who maybe are in a marriage right now that is struggling, that isn't even close to the oneness we see in Genesis chapter 2. I pray for them especially today. Father, I just pray that you would give them hope and encouragement as they look to Christ, who loves his very imperfect bride. Father, I pray for those who have been divorced in the past. Lord, I just pray that they wouldn't feel like second-class citizens, for they are not, for we are all sons and daughters of the living God by grace through faith. All of our sin is washed away, every bit of it. None of it remains. And so we praise you for that. Help us, church, or help us, God, as a church to have unity. Help our commitment to God's word to not fade, no matter what it says. And we'll give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?